Well, everyone loves a good courtroom scene, uh, whether it is a gripping scene from a movie like To Kill a Mockingbird or A Few Good Men, or maybe it is watching those made-for-TV court scenes like The People's Court with Judge Wapner. Anyone grew up with him? I did. Uh, maybe it's tuning in to the fiery Judge Judy, who's feisty. Or maybe the long-running Judge Joe Brown. We tune in and we can't tune out. There is uh, just something about watching those uh, trial scenes where it feels uh, like we cannot turn away. Uh, Perhaps you have seen the courtroom scene when a witness is sworn in during a trial and they are asked, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. By swearing an oath before God, the witness promises that their testimony, his or her testimony, will be true. They're not going to bend the truth. They're not going to add facts that they made up. They will tell no lies. Well, in the Old Testament, when capital crimes were committed, when someone was accused of doing something that could cost them uh, their life, oftentimes they would go to the city gate and stand in the presence of the judges of the land. Before a death penalty could be given, at least two eyewitnesses of the crime had to give their testimony, and their testimony had to agree completely. A man's or a woman's life was at stake. And so the idea of giving a true or accurate witness in the court of law was so important to God uh, that when He gave His commandments to uh, His people, He uh, talked to them and told them that they could not give false witness. They were to not bear false witness. Uh, The law included strong sanctions against anyone who delivered a false witness in a capital crime. In fact, it was so serious that the person giving the false witness would actually risk their own life if what they said wasn't true. Well, the scenario or the scene that we find ourselves in this morning is one where Jesus essentially is facing trial. It's not a courtroom scene, but he is facing the court of public opinion. Uh, Jesus had been ministering amongst the people. He had been performing uh, signs and wonders and miracles. He had been making bold claims, and he started to ruffle the feathers of the Jewish leaders and uh, the Jewish people. And so here in John chapter 5, Jesus gives his defense. John chapter 5 verse 30 says, I can do nothing on my own, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that that testimony that he bears about me is true. Uh, Jesus essentially is saying to uh, the people, uh, I'm going to call to the stand Uh, four different people or things that are going to bear witness about who I am. So this morning, I want to call four witnesses to the stand. And I want to share with you why, after hearing from those witnesses, uh, people, perhaps us, you 
and me might still be tempted uh, to not believe. So four witnesses, and I want to talk about the root of unbelief, or why do we still not believe uh, despite the fact that Jesus very clearly calls four witnesses to the stand. Uh, The first witness that Jesus is going to call to the stand is John the Baptist. So welcome, John the Baptist. John chapter 5, verse 33, you sent uh, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. He, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Uh, when John the Baptist arrived on the scene, uh, he began to uh, gather a bit of a following People heard his teachings. John the, Baptize, John the Baptizer was baptizing others. Scripture defines him as a burning and a shining lamp. He was a forerunner to Jesus. He was someone who came before Jesus to point other people to Jesus. This was his life work. He was a prophet in the, old, in the, in the mold of an Old Testament prophet. There had been 400 years of silence, and John the Baptist arrives on the scene, and uh, his, his style is a little unique. Uh, John the Baptist is a bit of a radical. He's a little different. People, at least some people, probably looked at him and thought to themselves, he's a bit much, maybe he's a bit extra, as the kids would say. Uh, But John the Baptist was clear about uh, why he had come, and he had come come to point people uh, to the Savior of the world, to the Lamb uh, who took away the sins of the world. John the Baptist, it says, came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light, John chapter 1, verses 7 through eight. Jesus told the religious leaders of the day, he told the crowds, if you need evidence that I am who I say that I am, I'd like to call John the Baptist to the stand. John the Baptist knows me. Uh, He's walked uh, with me. John the Baptist loves me. He's given his life to follow me and to tell other people about me. That's the way that John lived. Uh, He laid down his life uh, for the sake of another. So if you're on the fence, Jesus said, about who I am, uh, listen to John the Baptist. But Jesus continues and and doesn't stop there. He doesn't simply say, only listen uh, to John the Baptist. He uh, he calls someone or something to the stand that's even more powerful than the witness of John the Baptist. Uh, Jesus calls his own miracles and his mighty works to the stand. John chapter 5, verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, uh, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me uh, that the Father has sent me. Jesus validates the testimony of John the Baptist, but he's also quick to point out uh, that his own testimony, his own way of life and his way of living is even more powerful than John the Baptist. Jesus essentially says, if you want to know who I am, then look at my works. Uh, John's gospel records seven miracles 
Uh, Jesus turned the water into wine. Uh, he, he healed a royal official's son. He healed the paralytic at the pool. Remember, that's why we're having this conversation. Uh, in the coming weeks, we'll see that John or that Jesus multiplies uh, food and feeds the 5,000. Uh, Jesus walks on water. Jesus heals a man born blind. Jesus will raise a Lazarus from uh, the grave. And so Jesus is calling people's attention uh, to his works and saying, if you want to know who I am, then simply look at what I've done. A cynic might hear about those miracles and say, well, James, you mentioned seven. I mean, that's a good amount, but it's only seven. Well, at the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, verse 30, John's Gospel says to us, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, this book gives us just a taste, an appetizer to the ministry of Jesus. John's Gospel says Jesus did much more than what is recorded here. Uh, these just simply skim the surface. Jesus said, if you want to know who I am, then look uh, at uh, my works. Signs or miracles in the Bible uh, were a way of Jesus pointing other people to a greater reality. And that's why they're called signs. Uh, they point to something else. The work that Jesus did oftentimes was miraculous it, it built faith in the hearts of people. It revealed his character and who he was. But it was a, a sign. It was something that pointed people uh, to who he actually uh, claimed to be. And so Jesus tells the religious leaders in the crowd, if you're on the fence about uh, who I am, look to John the Baptist. Look uh, to the signs that I have done. See them and be amazed. My deeds, said Jesus, point to my deity. My deeds point to my deity. It's interesting that Jesus, at least right here, does not point to his words uh, to prove who he was. He could do that. He actually does that uh, later in this passage. Uh, but, but here he wants people to notice how he lives. He wants people uh, to notice his uh, mighty works. You know, if you want to know the character of an individual then look at their deeds. Um, examine how they live. It's, it's one thing to have many words, to have many claims about your character or who you are or even what you believe. Uh, it is another thing to examine how you live, to examine your works, um, to prove uh, whether your words are true. It's easy uh, sometimes uh, for us in word to confess our love or our affection for the Lord, but sometimes there can be a disconnect between the things that we say and how we live. Um, this, by the way, is true of all of us. And there are times when we can be inconsistent and what we say we believe, and what we actually, or how we actually live. Well, there was no inconsistency with Jesus. 
Uh, there, there was no point that people could look at his life and go, oh, yeah, well, what about? Jesus was consistent all of the time. And so he said to a doubting crowd and doubting religious leaders, if you want to know who I am, uh, let me call John the Baptist to the stand. If you want to know uh, who I am, let me just point out my mighty works, my miracles. Jesus isn't done, though. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop just with his works. He also calls uh, his father to the stand. He calls his father to the stand. Verse 37 And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And so Jesus calls his dad to the stand. The prosecuting attorney replies, who's that? Name doesn't ring a bell. I don't know who you are talking about. Jesus says the Father has borne witness about his Son. Remember John chapter 5 tells us in verse 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus is telling the Jewish leaders, You have not heard the voice of God. You have not seen God, and you do not have God's word abiding in your heart. Now, imagine for a moment that you are the religious leader of the day, and you're one who studies the law, the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, People look to you and perceive you or see you as a religious leader, as kind of the go-to guy uh, to talk to about spiritual things or religious things. You're the expert. Uh, You would be the one who wrote the books. Uh, You would be the one who interprets the book. Uh, People would come to you for answers. And Jesus is telling the religious leaders, you do not know the voice of God. You do not uh, have God's word in your heart. You don't know God. It would be like going to the medical professional and saying to him or to her, you don't know what you're talking about. It would be like going to the mechanic, spend his life working on cars, looking under the hood, and simply saying you don't know what you're doing. These words from Jesus, needless to say, would step on some toes they would be wildly offensive to the religious leaders. Jesus is not mincing words. He is clearly not trying to win the crowd. He is not going out of his way to start a religious movement or to win the court of public opinion. Jesus was a truth teller. And Jesus spoke truth even when the truth was not easy to hear. But Jesus is not going out of his way to be harsh. He is to the point. When you study the scriptures, when you study the New Testament, Jesus is described in places as gentle and lowly. And he was. And he is. 
He is described as loving, and he was, and he is. And Jesus was also honest. Uh, He was, and he is. Even when the truth was difficult uh, to hear, he's not softening uh, the blow of truth. He's not beating around the bush. Uh, No one is leaving this conversation and saying to their friends, but I wonder what he really thinks. Oh, they know. They know what he really thinks. God the Father has borne witness about Jesus. Uh, He has said to those who will listen, this is my son. Listen to him. Follow him. God the Father loves God the Son. God the Father sent God the Son. Jesus has plainly told religious leaders, you do not know God. You do not know my Father. And so he begins, Jesus, by calling John the Baptist to the stand. And he says, look at the life and ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist knows me. Uh, He has seen me. He has spent time with me. If you won't listen uh, to John the Baptist, look at my works. Look at my miracles. Look at what I've done. Not just anyone can do that. Uh, If you still doubt, if you still have questions, uh, listen to my father. I'm going to call my dad to the stand. He'll tell you. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues. I said there are four witnesses that Jesus calls. The last one is Scripture itself. Verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus continues to build his case. You can almost picture the people digging in their heels. They have doubts. They refuse to believe. They don't want to come to Jesus. Jesus has given them John the Baptist. Jesus has given them evidence of his mighty works. Jesus has called his father to the stand. And now Jesus is going to give to them the very thing that they think brings them life. Jesus is going to point to his very word, the Old Testament Scriptures. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They, they use the Word. The religious leaders, they use the Word of God. They, they wield it as a weapon against the people. They don't see it as something that humbles them and changes them. They see it as something where they have a corner on the truth. Uh, They they love speaking their perceived truth. They love standing up in front of others in order to be seen. Uh, But they, they know the Scriptures, but they don't know the God of the Scriptures. They think they know the Bible, but they don't know the God of the Bible. This is why Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 1, a scripture reads, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. 
They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. He continues on in verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, but when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus is building his case, but he's not, he's not simply building his case to win an argument. This is important. Jesus doesn't simply want the people to realize that he is right and they are wrong. Jesus isn't out primarily to go, I win, you lose. The verdict is in. Jesus is not after a mic drop moment. Uh, he is after the human heart. And life is being offered. Life is being offered uh, to the people. The very thing that humanity longs for is available to them. The very thing that you long for and I long for is available uh, to us. And Jesus is telling the people, you refuse to come to me. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So the question that I want to ask is why? Why would people refuse life? If it is true that Jesus offers life in his name, if it is true that he has extended grace and mercy to those who will receive it, if it is true that the very thing that you and I long for and desire in life could be ours, why would anyone, why would anyone look at that gift and think to themselves, thanks, but no thanks? I don't want it. Because that's what Jesus is saying here. He is saying not only that you don't come to me, he is saying to the people, you don't want to come to me. You don't want uh, to come to me. So, so why? Why do people say that? Why won't people come? Why won't you? Jesus tells us in verse 41, I do not receive glory from my people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe? when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. So why won't people believe in Jesus? Why won't people come to Jesus? Jesus told us in verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from the only God? Why won't people come? People don't come to Jesus, not primarily because intellectually it doesn't make sense to them. Pe people may wrestle intellectually. 
People may, may, may doubt. They may try to figure things out using the minds that God has given to them. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that, that people don't grow in their relationship with the Lord as they think through uh, the things of God with the mind that God has given to them. But that's not primarily uh, why people will not believe. Uh, Jesus uh, says to the listening crowd that people will not believe because they love the glory of man uh, more than they love the glory of God. You don't want Jesus because you want human praise. Uh, you don't want uh, Jesus because you want to be uh, the center of attention. You want to be in control. You want to be exalted. You want to be the captain of your own ship. You want to sit on the throne of the king in your own life. We don't trust Jesus because we love self-glory more than we love God's glory. Uh, we love the praise of people more than we love the praise of God. Uh, we are not lovers of God, Jesus said, because we are lovers of self. Um, God has created us. He's made us to make much of him, uh, to see him for who he is, to, to glory in God. And more often than not, we are much more impressed by the person we see in the mirror than the person who has displayed himself in all of creation. I do not receive glory from my people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Needless to say, uh, this is not an effective way to win friends and influence people. Uh, Jesus, again, was clearly not concerned with building ministry momentum. Uh, if he was concerned with winning the crowd or starting a movement, he likely would not go out of his way and say things like this. He would not look people squarely in the eye and tell them, you love yourself more than you love God. And yet, uh, that's what Jesus does uh, right here. Uh, Jesus is speaking the truth even when it is difficult to hear and even when it hurts. Uh, Jesus is speaking the truth, and when he speaks the truth, he does so in loving mercy. And this is the thing that's important not to miss. Um, the, the reason that Jesus spoke truth and told people what was true about the human heart and about their condition uh, not, was not because Jesus was being unloving. In fact, Jesus uh, was being merciful. Uh, he, he was not trying to have a tweetable moment. He was not after clicks or likes or retweets. He wanted people to see him for who he was and believe. If you want to see the heart of Jesus demonstrated uh, toward the crowd and toward people, look no further than Luke chapter 19, uh, verse 42. I want to read this passage for you. Just listen to these words. Luke chapter 19, verses 42 through 44. And hear the heart of God. Admittedly, you might miss it at first, but just listen for the heart of God. This is Jesus in Luke 19, verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from, you, uh, from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies 
will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, maybe you hear those words and you think to yourself, what? Like, th that's the heart of God? Like, Jesus, this is a triumphal entry. Jesus has, has gotten on the colt, the donkey, and he speaks these words. He says that the time of visitation is here. He tells them, you will be hemmed in from all sides. Essentially, you'll be disciplined because you missed it. But this is the heart of God. This is why I say this is the heart of God. Because the verse right before verse 42 is verse 41. I attended seminary. This is verse 41. And when he, when Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And he wept over it because he looked at the city and, he's, and he said to them, like, life has arrived. Life is here and life is yours. I am right before you. Believe me and trust in me and come to me. And the people would not. The people would not come. The people would not trust. The people would not believe. And when Jesus saw their unbelief, he wept over the city. People said, we don't need you, Jesus. We have Moses. We have Moses. You remember Moses, Jesus? Perhaps you've heard of him. He wrote a few books. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus said to the people, you believe Moses, you like Moses, law-giving Moses, you're good with him. You've set your hope on Moses. And Jesus says to the people, you, you miss it. Like when Moses wrote, Moses wrote about me. When Moses gave you the law, like he was writing about the one who would be the law keeper. Moses was writing about me. And you don't see it. The word, the word of God, all of the word of God is about Jesus. The Old Testament isn't some disconnected book. The Old Testament looks forward to the coming of the Messiah, to the coming of the Savior. And Jesus says to the people, that Savior, that Messiah has come. Will you believe him? Will you believe him? Uh, to those who are here this morning who, who don't believe, maybe you're on the fence, uh, maybe you're fascinated with the things of Jesus, but you're not a follower of Jesus, Maybe you're interested in the stories. You've heard some of the stories growing up. Maybe your parents imparted them to you. Maybe you've been to church a handful of times and 
You've heard a pastor or a leader talk about Jesus, but you would readily admit that you don't believe in Jesus. You haven't trusted in Him. Um, this book, this passage, this book, all of the book, the book of John, um, the book is for you. John, at the end of his gospel, in a, in a verse that hopefully we've heard once or twice as we've walked through uh, this series, this book, we're told, is given to us um, so that we might believe. These things are written, John 20, 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And so that's my prayer for you this morning. If you are here and you haven't trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, uh, that you would believe in Jesus, His perfect life, right, His sacrificial death, the fact that He was buried, He rose again, defeating death and offering life to you and to me. Um, if you've never trusted in Him before, if you've never had eyes to see, I want you to know that I am praying for you uh, that God might give you eyes to see and to believe, that you may come to Jesus and that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, uh, you may have life in His name. There, there's always a starting point uh, with our relationship with God. There's a, there's a starting point. This is, this is true in life, by the way. Like when you look at experiences that we have in life, oftentimes there is a time when it begins, right? Think about, uh, you know, students, think about your pursuit of college. Like that whole pursuit starts somewhere. You decide to go visit a place, and then you like said place, and you send your application to said place. You're like, this is my essay. This is what I've done. Please, I beg of you, please accept me. I want to go there. You fill out the paperwork. They're like, you're in. You're like, I'm in. And then there's a step. Like you have to go, I'm, I'm in. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to click the box. I'm going to send my deposit. That's not the end of your education. It's just the beginning. It's just, it's just the start of something. It's a starting point. I remember when Melissa and I first started dating, we went on our second date. I was, I was bold. I was bold. I planned our second date before we had gone on our first date. Men, if you're single here, it's not always recommended, but I was feeling good about my chances. So after the first date, I had a second date lined up. We were going to go to a Stephen Curtis Chapman concert because, man, I was living life on the edge, and he was edgy. And so we went to a concert, and I remember there was this time at the concert. I don't remember exactly when it happened, but there was this point where he encouraged us to grab the hand of the person next to us and to worship together. I don't know if I was worshiping in that moment, but I was certainly glad that Melissa was standing right next to me because I grabbed her hand, and it felt like a starting point. It was like the beginning of something. Sparks flew. I could see it in her eyes. Maybe not, but she's still around. Things worked out. But there's, a starting, there's a starting point in life when things begin where you look back and you're going, man, that's the time that I said yes. That's, that's the time we started. That's the time that I started working. Like, this is true of all times in life. I just wonder in your relationship with Jesus, is there just a point where you've gone, man, I'm like, I'm in. I'm in. I've heard this story. I believe. I believe Jesus is who he claimed to be. I believe. I'm in. I just wonder if that might be uh, today for you. 
Uh, if you are here this morning and you would uh, claim to be a follower of Jesus, if you would say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer. I, yeah, I, I mean, I did that. I, I, I know my starting point. I was, I was there once. But you're thinking, yeah, like, this isn't for me, James. <laughs> this is for the fence sitters, the people who haven't kind of come around yet and seen what I've seen. As for me, I got to work tomorrow. Like, I'm raising kids. I got bills to pay. Like, how does this apply to me? Well, this uh, applies to you in massive ways for multiple reasons. One, because if you're a follower of Jesus, the same faith that was given to you as a gift when you believed is, is necessary and needed every day of our lives. I mean, like every day, it's as if the Lord is asking us, like, do you trust me? Like, will you follow me? Do you believe me? Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm just talking about walking with Jesus. Like every day, we're, like, we wake up in the morning and it is, God is going, hey, will you, will you trust me today? Will you believe me today? And so that same faith that we were desperate for when we first believed is the same faith that we need each and every day as we walk with the Lord. The same temptation that we have to be lovers of self Lovers of our own glory as opposed to the glory of God. We fight that every single day. Like that doesn't go away. There is a great temptation each and every day um, for us to pursue and chase after our own longings, our own desires, our own wants. We, <laughs> we feel disappointed and discouraged and despondent when we don't receive the glory that we think is ours, when we disappear, when we're unseen, when we're in the shadows. And so we wrestle with this um, each and every day of our lives. Um, so this word, uh, this word is for you, and this word is for me, um, regardless of where you find yourself this morning, and that is true every day of your life. And so this is what I want to do this morning. Um, I want to give you uh, just space and time uh, to spend with the Lord and Maybe this time for you is an invitation to come to the Lord for the very first time and just simply say to God, like, I believe you. I'm, I'm in. I'm in. I, I believe you. I, I believe that Jesus is my Savior and I'm trusting in you. Maybe this time that I'm going to give to you is, is that time for you. Uh, maybe this time is just an opportunity for you to go, God, I'm so desperate for you. I need, like, I need you every day. And I'm a, I am a wreck without you. And so, God, would you work in my heart and in my life and build faith in me? Maybe this time for you is a confession that you really care deeply about you. Your glory more than God's glory. And this is just an opportunity for you to confess that before the Lord and to say, God, would you help me? Like, God, you know my heart. You know my heart. Lord, I, I confess that to you. I admit that to you today, and I ask for your forgiveness. And so um, bow with me in prayer and just spend these, these, these few uh, minutes uh, together uh, just doing business with the Lord and coming before him and being still and quiet. Uh, we, we need this. We don't do it enough. And so spend time with the Lord now. God, your word in... Uh, revealing yourself to us oftentimes encourages us uh, to think or to feel or to do. Uh, to, to think clearly 
and accurately about who you are, um, to, to feel, or you've given us emotions, you've, you've made us this way. Sometimes you, you want us uh, to feel differently about you or about people. There are times when your word clearly articulates to us that, that you are calling us to move and to act. You want us to do something. You want us to start doing something. You want us to stop doing something else. Lord, I don't know where uh, you have people this morning, but I, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit uh, that you would work in their hearts in such a way uh, that, that you would move us to movement. God, I pray that you would stir in us an affection for you. Uh, Lord, where there is a lack of faith, I pray by the power of your Spirit that you would pour faith into our hearts. Lord, where there is pride and arrogance, uh, Lord, I pray that you would break us, that we would confess that before you, that we would come to you, and that you would wash us and make us clean. Uh, regardless of where folks find themselves this morning, Lord, I pray that you would do a mighty work in their hearts uh, for your name's sake. Uh, at this time, I want to invite our our prayer uh, team, Judy and uh, Billy and Phil, uh, to come to the sides. We're going to sing uh, and confess uh, together our last song of our need for the Lord. And if you're here and there's something that you need prayer for, uh, whether it's prayer to come to Jesus or whether it's just something that's going on in your life that you're celebrating or that you're asking God's help for uh, during this last song, if you want to come and, and pray with someone from our team, uh, you can.